Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast sponsored by Toro University, where we're going to help you find a way to balance your Toro values with your chosen career. So joining us for the first episode is Ben Simons, an industrial organizational psychologist, and he's going to go through all things psychology. So I hope you enjoy the ride and join us for episode two coming next week. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Chosen Career. And today we're joined by Ben Simon. Ben Simon, you are in industrial organizational psychology or IO psychology for short, as we will definitely be referencing throughout this episode. Um, so just quickly to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about um, what industrial organizational psychology is? And then we can go in a little bit about how you yourself got there. Sure, so IO psychology, is a very interesting field. Um, it has been around for a little while, actually. Um, the I stands for industrial, the O is for organizational, um, and it really blends um, both staffing and hiring of psychology and assessment side to the organizational piece, which is more coaching and team-based um, psychology. But at the end of the day, IO psychology really is all about bringing psychology into the workplace and being able to diagnose workplace issues um, from a people perspective. Mm. So it's very much in the industry side of like the business rather than actual the personal that usually you would assume psychology is very much clinical psychology. So it's very interesting to be doing a psychology episode when we're not going into a clinical psychologist. So it is interesting. Um, Yes, it is a little bit more diverse and varies from the other more clinical um, psychology roles. As you mentioned, industrial, it actually is used um, in schools, um, the military is one of the big fields, and government is, you know, a big field where IO psychologists work. Um, so, can you explain what, what do you mean by military? Is that how would they use IO? So, I think uh, a great example is looking at, for instance, um, Israeli uh, fighter jets, right? Um, like how there's a lot of psychology behind how um, the army works. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting psychological principles um, that go behind. Um, how, um, you know, different uh, pieces of the military work together. So think of um, uh, different uh, military uh, leaders and groups like the Marines, right? They have that, you know, those core um, values that drive them. And when people think of teamwork, they talk about the Marines. So IO psychology and kind of the team or the organizational piece uh, is used very frequently within military groups and teaching them how to work together properly because again it's a high stress environment Mm. uh, and it's interesting to see how different um, people-based you know psychological factors can play into teams and for teams to work successfully together very interesting so just let's take a step back as well and let's can you explain to us how we actually got into industrial psychology i mean where do you go to you Firstly, sorry, I can't speak right now. Where you you grew up in LA, yes, yeah, and you went to base. I did. So, so, how did that lead you to where you are today? So, I um, went to base in Israel. Really enjoyed my two years there. And after that, I was looking for you know um, a good college degree. I was interested in psychology, but at the same time, I wanted to utilize um, the credits that Turo offers to incentivize students to continue you know, into a college and kind of move down to choosing a career path. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, you know, to incentivize students, they offer a certain amount of credits. Mm. Um, I like this subliminal messaging here to come to Toro. <laughs> come to Toro. Uh, we'll give you uh, however many credits it is. Um, so, so 
what was the interest in psychology? So I've always been interested in psychology. Um, you know, every every good you know Jew has a grandmother or parent that wants them to become a doctor. I wasn't interested in that psychology, maybe that second place. Um, but I was always interested in psychology and you know what makes things work. I mm. actually grew up like tinkering with cars uh, and you know very hands on. Like, what are the mechanics behind something? And psychology is the mechanics behind the human experience, but you know behind uh, human beings. So it's very interesting to see why people do what they do. It's very fascinating. Mm. So we've delved a little bit into like clinical psychology. <clears throat> sorry clinical psychology and also industrial organizational psychology, IO psychology, what else was there, especially at the time when you were thinking of going down psychology, was was there other things on your mind that you were looking into within the psychology branch? So I happened to have come into um, Turo with the interest within IO psychology, um, you know, initially, mm -hmm. but uh, I know- How did you know about this for that? So I learned about IO psychology. Um, I can't remember the first point where I heard the term. I do remember that I had a uh, interest in business, mm -hmm. but I didn't uh, quite enjoy sales. Um, and I had an interest in psychology and someone mentioned to me, they said, you know, there's actually a field that merges the two of those together. And I said, wow, that, you know, that really is perfect. Mm -hmm. I was so expecting you to say, oh, I saw a YouTube video on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic. But. I saw, yeah. So so you so you saw someone told you that there was the able to mix both business and psychology. So you instantly like I think that's the you came in knowing that that was the route you were going to go down. Yeah, yeah. Wow, interesting. So you actually you came in the other a couple of weeks ago and you were giving us a talk on like you and a couple of others were giving us a talk on a careers night basically on the different routes you can go down with a bachelor's in psychology. Can you expand on that for the listeners for those who aren't as equipped as you when coming in knowing that they want to go down a certain route, but they know they, they like to understand humans or whatever it is, and they want to go take the route of psychology. What other paths are there to use your bachelor's in psychology for? So Turo offers a really a really great psychology program. Um, the, you know, the head of the department over here, Alan Perry, is you know, an amazing psychologist. Big fan. Um, he's one of my favorite professors. Um, and Turo offers, you know, um, a clinical path, whether it's a PhD or PsyD, um, you know, traditional or, you know, if you want to do research, if you want to be a practitioner within, you know, more traditional clinical psychology, there's forensic psychology, which is um, the use of psychology um, and merged with law. So, for instance, uh, whenever you hear about like the insanity defense, you know, they bring in a forensic psychologist to judge you know, the clinical state mm -hmm. of different prisoners or different convicts. That's Dr. Perry's. <coughs> that is Dr. Perry's specialty yeah. and it is fascinating, fascinating so stuff. Yeah. Go watch a YouTube video on that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's also school psychology uh, and child psychology, which is fascinating. Is there a difference between the two or they're the same? Um, I don't know if there is a difference between the two. I know that, you know, often child psychology is, you know, um, is used in school settings and perhaps that's what they you know refer to by school psychology mm. uh many um psychologists who specialize in child psychology often work in a school setting mm. uh, or private so with that you would go you need a phd for it or you need an msw <clears throat> or is that other things so for would most you, clinical are you able to, to expand on those to the knowledge that i well? have to that yeah. you know lesser degree um most uh clinical roles um 
you need either a PhD or PsyD or a MSW. However, uh, MSW to, is what? So MSW is a master's in social work, or there's also a master's in clinical, uh, I think it's uh, clinical counseling, I, I forget. But uh, in terms of social workers, they also, to practice clinically, they need to get um, both their license, their L, and then their clinical, their C. So if you hear a social worker who has an LCSW behind their name, that means they are licensed to you know, practice clinically. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they just have a MSW or LMSW, um, they're more limited in what they can uh, practice and how they can practice. Interesting. So mm-hmm. we've got forensics, school, <clears throat> and child psychology, clinical, um, IO. Is there any that we've missed out? Um, I don't think so. You don't think so? So usually coming in to get, I, what would you recommend someone who likes the idea of psychology but doesn't know necessarily what kind of path they want to go down? What would you recommend they kind of think about to determine what path they want to go down? So uh, one of the things we do at uh, at my current role, um, we work heavily within assessments. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it sounds funny, but but you can go online and you can take an assessment that identifies different interests you have and capabilities, you know, do you work, you know, are you someone who has a lot of autonomy, who values autonomy, are you focused, you know, what are your different skill sets and you can actually identify what careers work and don't work well with you from a scientific approach, which, uh, but let's say we weren't doing that, Mm -hmm. Um, real life exposure is really great. Um, I actually shadowed, when I was in high school, I shadowed a uh, psychiatrist um, for a couple days. And, you know, I've, I shadowed a couple psychologists and decided it wasn't for me. I worked in multiple small businesses. So you knew um, even in high school that you were... That, that I was interested in psychology, in psychology and business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. Because a lot of people mm-hmm. coming in, especially after doing however many years in yeshiva, like, it's kind of a, a shock to the system to like, okay, now I'm, I'm choosing a career. What do I want to do? Like, how do I want to go down the path? Right. And that's the number one tip I would give to anyone who's, you know, would watch a video such as this a little earlier on is that it's never too early to start preparing for your career. Mm-hmm. At the same time, don't freak out if you're, you know, been in yeshiva for a couple of years and you're starting out like, like anywhere you start, that's great. You know, put your full energy into it. Um, but starting, you know, you know, a head start really does does count does mm-hmm. count for something. So let's let's delve back into IO psychology a little bit. Can you explain to us a day in the life of an IO psychologist? Sure, is, I'll is give that, you a day. Do we, in the... do we do we call you an IO psychologist? Is that the right terminology? So you could call me an IO psychologist. I actually have a master's and not a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, however, in IO psychology. Um, most practitioners only um, get masters and not PhDs. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is because um, the nature of IO psychology is more of a practitioner role where people go out and they practice and they affect those uh, scientific and research um, Interesting, because I, I would have thought that the research mm-hmm. side of it is more PhD style. No? It is. So I was saying that there are IO psychologists who focus on research, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of people who go into IO psychology are really excited to um, practice and to see, like to affect change within organizations and mm-hmm. settings. So I'm not sure if we quite touched on it, but where did you do, what did you do your master's in? I, we may have touched on it, but I'm not sure. You, you went to Baruch, right? I did. So what yeah. did you do your master's in there? 
So I got my master's in IO psychology. In IO psychology, yeah. meaning that if you got it in IO psychology, how does it work that some people would get some people would get a PhD in IO psychology or? Right. So I'll um, I'll kind of outline the the trajectory of the career path. Um, I got my I came to Landers I think in 2017. I was here for two years. Did my uh, got my bachelor's in psychology here at Turo. Then immediately went to Baruch for their master's in IO psychology program. You, there was a time in between graduating and starting at Baruch, or you went straight. There in? was a summer where I was working. Really? Because so, yeah. I, I know a lot of people that <clears throat> you usually have to take a year out before you end up starting your master's. So, so interestingly, you mentioned that an MBA, for example, often you can only get into with around two years at least of experience of business mm -hmm. experience. And as I, I think we'll get into a little bit later, I am a big proponent of, you know, um, working before you start your master's or working during your master's mm -hmm. because that experience will really shape the education and make it more than just a piece of paper. Why well, get into it later? Let's get into it now. All right. Um, <laughs> how would that, practically speaking, how would one, because I know a very hard thing is getting a job without certain degrees. So how would one get how would one be working without having a master's? So that's where it really ties in, in my own, um, uh, I mean, my own opinion of starting early. Um, the earlier you, you start, the less um, you have, the less needs you have, and you can take internships or opportunities that you can't take at a later date. For example, my first um, experience with IO psychology, I was graduating, I think I was in my first year, uh, it was in between my first and second year, uh, at Turo, and I saw an internship on Aflac on LinkedIn for Aflac, the insurance company, the Duck, mm -hmm. um, and I knew someone at Aflac, and I reached out to them and said, you know, do you know anything about this internship? They said, oh, it's actually in my um, in my office, and they were able to get me a meeting with, and this was back in LA. They were able to get me a meeting with um, the head of that region. And I asked, you know, what, and it was a type of internship, which uh, is common, you know, what value can you bring to this organization? What value can you bring in three, four months? So I asked the person I knew working there, I said, what are they struggling with? And he said, they're struggling in retaining their salespeople. They have people who come in um, and over the course of three months, 90% um, of them leave. It's called attrition. So they have a 90% attrition rate um, or even 97%, very, over very high. Over how hmm? long? Over a couple months, even. So imagine yeah. if you took a hundred people and they, you kind of brought them into the, um, you know, first round interview where you want them to come, um, you would have about five to seven after three or four months really? remaining. So that's a lot of money. That's a lot of time. It's a lot of resources that the company that Affleck invests in taking people through that process. So their goal. So before we get into that, um, I kind of uh, identified that need or pain point. And I walked into the meeting saying, listen, my name is Ben Simon, pleasure to meet you. Um, I've heard that you have a problem with attrition, with employees leaving and you're looking to boost your retention. I'm you know, uh, interested in a field called IO psychology uh, and you know, re employee retention is something that I can help with, that I can you know, use different research and um, practices to help boost within your company. And he literally got super excited. He pulled over his uh, ATS, it's called Applicant Tracking System, flipped it over, is like, 
let's get into this. Um, so I was able to do that, and I didn't get paid for that that opportunity. I'm and saying for you, that must have been an incredible experience because you actually were practically using all your skills at that point. Uh, yeah, and it was very interesting because I um, it was entirely self-directed, meaning uh, I kind of set the goals that we were going to try, and over the course of a couple months, um, we did what we could, mm-hmm. but we you know, did different surveys, different assessments, um, and tried to identify what it takes to keep people uh, in a role where uh, they weren't making any money. It's entirely commission-based. So mm-hmm. how do you get someone to stay in a role for a couple months to see if they're good if they're not making any money? So mm-hmm. that, was a, that was quite an interesting experience. That is very interesting. So that was my first foray into IO psychology. Uh, and again, you know, you never know where opportunities come from or where they're gonna take you. Um, so you can always just be open and willing mm. to try new things, I think. I think a big thing for a lot of people is that it's often you're taking a lot of risks by not getting paid. For sure, it's it's a great experience, but a lot of people aren't at that point that they can just jump into something and not get paid. Exactly. So that is a huge topic of debate. Mm. Uh, should interns be paid? Should they not be paid? Um, and... Uh, most of my opportunities, my IO focused opportunities before my um, you know first full time job, were practically not being paid, mm. and that's rough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's again why I mentioned starting earlier. Or I worked when I was in Toro. I worked three part time jobs right. um, while I was here, and um, you know it it is it's hard. And you know for instance, if you're in the medical field while you're in medical school, you're working full-time you're not getting paid as well mm-hmm. um, and it's it's an investment and the earlier you start the less the lower your needs are the less costs you have um, so the easier it is to take on a role that's non-paid that's not to say that there aren't plenty of opportunities that are paid um, those just are harder to find um, interesting yeah. so what would you say is probably I guess getting into psychology and um, your actual field of industrial organizational psychology, IO. This is, it's a mouthful, industrial organizational <laughs> psychology. Um, but yeah. what would you say is like the biggest challenge you faced actually going into these things? So as you said it, the, the hardest thing is getting in. Meaning if you go on any career website, LinkedIn, or any of the other career sites, you'll see hundreds or thousands of job postings for IO psychologists um, however, they're all looking for people with five to ten years of experience. And you mm-hmm. ask, well, how do I get the five years of experience? Where does that come from? No one's looking for, uh, you know, Some a master's student with, with no experience. Mm-hmm. And it's rough. It's very hard. And you'll see an opportunity and um, you may not have the years of experience to back that up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of ties back to finding people who will take chances on you and being open to different experiences. Some people um, who go into HR, I mean, who go into IO psychology will start in HR. They'll get an HR admin or HR analyst position somewhere, and they'll apply the IO IO psychology principles or they'll learn, they'll pick up different pieces. Um, So yeah, you don't have to start off with your dream job. You can Mm. build towards it. Interesting. And as someone who is very much into personality traits, (laughs) What would you say is is the most applicable personality trait or something that is, is helpful when going into, specifically I would say IO psychology, but also into the different aspects of psychology? So 
I think they are very different. For IO psychology, the number one skill, um, not necessarily a personality trait, but is storytelling. And the mm-hmm. skill is being able to uh, share your perspective and convince another person, not necessarily that you're right, but convince them to listen to your argument, to listen to your data, because IO psychology, one of the main things that IO psychologists will do is they'll come into a boardroom and you'll have the CEO, the CFO, the C, you know, OO, all sitting there, and you'll come and say, We've you know spent the last couple of months doing different um, you know projects. We've run you know here are different uh, analytics. We'll pull them up in you know nice uh, animations you know, and we'll try to convince them to affect uh, certain changes. And very often they'll say, "I don't understand this. We don't want to do this. It's a big cost." And you need to be able to show value for what you do. Mm-hmm. And I think certain fields it's easy to demonstrate the value you have in certain fields you really need to be able to showcase it and explain it what really is that value that you're offering them so i'll get i'll go back to retention because that's something i did for a couple years so um if you look on gallup or glassdoor um there are different uh metrics um that have been collected over the years of how much it costs when an employee um leaves an organization when they're when there's attrition um, for a blue collar worker, someone who makes, let's say $50,000, it could cost the company $10,000 between that person leaving the three month period of time where it takes them to find a new person for that person to get up to the proficiency level as the person who had previously left. And if someone's considering leaving, they're not going to be giving their full productivity levels. Mm-hmm. So you have kind of a uh, a dip in, the, in productivity and then a couple of months until that productivity level is back up and all of that time is losing company money. So at the lower level, your companies are losing $10,000. It can go up to hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you have an executive, for example, or multiple executives who leave, um, you have thousands of, um, of, you have hundreds of clients and thousands of deals or different opportunities that aren't given the, the attention um, that they require. So attrition and conversely employee retention is a huge um, benefit or cost to most organizations. That is very interesting. So another aspect as well that I wanted to focus on, especially we're going to get into the from kite in a second, but you're married. So how does, so Mazda, so how does, what's the balance there of dealing with you? You have a kid Mm -hmm. or... So I assume by the time you have a kid, things will obviously change. But at this point now, how does having a family and having a work and having a job, what's the balance there? What do you do? So it's interesting interesting that you mentioned that because when I was looking into IO psychology and specifically IO consulting, there are two paths. There is the internal path and the external path. Mm -hmm. Um, Internal is more within working within one organization, you know, kind of like the nine to five, working at let's say some organization like Pepsi or, you know, um, Apple, where you're working there, you're the in-house IO psychologist um, and you have more of a structure. External consulting is you're working for a company like Deloitte, Bain, uh, Accenture, where you're uh, on the road five days a week, you're off to Wisconsin to, Mm -hmm. you know, meet with uh, the managers of a plant, diagnose the problems they're having, which can be very taxing on uh, married life. So I chose more of the internal route. Mm. Um, I do know some IOs who are external consultants, and it's very hard. Mm. Um, but Baruch Hashem, why would someone choose to go down that route? Um, it's money's a better. Lot, it's a lot more financially uh, uh, rewarding. 
Okay. Or it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that you chose that nine to five, you find the balance is easier? So the balance is definitely easier, especially with work-life balance that's being uh, focused on by many companies today with COVID. Like I work from home, I'm able to you know, get up in the morning, go to Shacharis, come back, have a coffee, start my day, like leave for a couple minutes to run to you know Mincha, which is you know twenty minutes. It's like a five minute uh, walk from my house. So um, working from home really does make things easier. Cut two hours of commute out of your day. Mm-hmm. You have time to you know go to local base measures. I happen to go to Landers, nice. Turo, oh. uh, and learn a I'm bit. Loving this uplifting so, western. <laughs> so yeah, it, it is a lot easier with that. So let's delve more now into the Frumkite side of it. I guess coming from from base and then into Landers, you've been in like a nice, I would say, good bubble of Jews like constantly. So, what would you say is the, like the single most surprising thing about entering the secular world and the working world? So, something that I was um, that was definitely surprising before I started um, going into secular workforce, and it's been consistent, by the way, between my last three or four jobs is I always thought, you know, listen, do you wear a keep at work? Do you not wear a keep um, you know, eating your your plate that came in from home, your Tupperware, your tinfoil covered plate, uh, kashras, people are gonna look at you funny, like not working late on Fridays, um, and all the different religious uh, pieces, you know, is there gonna be overt anti-Semitism in the workplace? And many people will limit the extent of what they do uh, externally because of a fear of that. And Baruch Hashem, what I've experienced across multiple different jobs is, you know, if you um, if you stay true to what you value, very often, like there aren't those external, um, those, those fears aren't um, as applicable, mm-hmm. I would say. So like I've worn a kippah my entire career so far, it's only been a couple of years, um, bringing in my own food, you know, workers ask, like, you want to go out for food? Oh, like I can't, you know, explain kosher once, um, you know, explain, uh, you know, shomernikia, shaking women's hands can be complicated. I, I, I would I would advise everyone to talk to their own rabbi. Uh, no, my rabbi personally said, listen, you can shake a woman's hand because you don't want to insult people with COVID. People mm-hmm. are a lot less. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm into, really scared of COVID. <laughs> into, uh, into shaking hands. But... Um, but it's a respect thing, and mm-hmm. um, it's more about, um, you know, Derechiba, about, you know, things being more than professional and setting that professional relationship, you know, in a very strong way is is really great in terms of setting boundaries and respect. Because um, yeah. I was going to ask, is IO from Friendly? But I guess you sort of explained <laughs> that you yourself, it's depending on your outlook whether or not you can make it from Friendly. So that's definitely one piece of it. There are a lot of, there are a good number of uh, Jewish IOs. Um, I know about a hundred or so. Wow, that's, that's fair. Um, yeah. We do stick together because it's kind of a more emerging field. And um, most people seem to be able to practice Judaism, you know, fully, mm-hmm. both in their normal lives, you know, at work. So what would you say are the challenges within Frumkite? So there are challenges, for instance, we had a holiday party this year, which actually ended up getting canceled, but it was at a Trafe, Trafe restaurant. When I say Trafe, I mean, like, the only things on the, on the fixed menu were, you know, octopus and, and like, it wasn't, it wasn't like you could get a, you know, everything gets complicated, even salad or whatever it was. 
Uh, and the question was, do you go out, do I go out with all my coworkers? You know, there's gonna be unlimited alcohol because companies love alcohol. Um, and do you go out and go to a trafe restaurant with a keep on and where there's alcohol and like, what do you do in a situation like that? Mm -hmm. You know, so asking, you know, my rub and figuring out, you know, um, there's obviously the piece that relates to your uh, success within your career. Will you be able to continue moving forward if they feel like you're not part of the company? Uh, you know, the advice I personally got was um, if it's going to make a difference and in my company it really does. You go, you can order food. Is there food. no issue of more sign or something like that, I guess? So um, what I was told is that it's very common for professionals in New York, meaning mm -hmm. um, if people see like a Jewish person with a kippah on, mm -hmm. um, you yeah, know, eating good. at a restaurant, if they, you know, obviously they'll look and see, you know, you want to eat from something that looks different from a styrofoam mm -hmm. container or whatever it is. I definitely don't want to be telling other people what to do because it's definitely not my wheelhouse, but um, but like those are complications. Going out to bars with, you know, coworkers after work, you know, there's strong halachas about drinking with Gaim. so it does get complicated in trying to keep that relationship, that professional relationship, but staying away from, you know, isurim and halacha. Interesting. So, what would you say is some good advice for someone who's thinking of going down the same path as you? Um, so one piece that we hit on earlier is start as early as possible. Mm -hmm. um, in the field of IO psychology, work experience counts for a lot. If you just have a bachelor's and a master's and no work experience, you're going to have a really tough time getting a job. And when I say getting a job, getting, you know, after you get your master's, most people are thinking, I want to get a job in the 70 to $85,000 or $90,000 range. Mm -hmm. And you won't be getting that. You'll end up getting a job. Uh, getting like an HR analyst role for like forty or like fifty, fifty-five thousand uh, dollars, and that can be rough because someone coming out with their bachelor's can get that. Mm -hmm. So one of the you know best pieces of advice I could offer is <clears throat> if you can work while you're an undergrad, if you can work while you're in grad school. Many programs like Baruch, my program, uh, isn't at night, so you ha like it's it caters to working professionals. Build your experience, get out there. Um, and see what like Hashem kind of puts in your path in terms of career because um, you'll be you'll find something it'll interest you and somehow the pieces will kind of fall into place and you'll be at a certain you know place in your career and you know wonder how you even got there and kind of look backward and see how Hashem set set yeah. things in motion. It's interesting. So also one thing that I was wondering is for people like going into psychology, what do you say to that that there's certain things that we we don't know about going into psychology? Um, I think one thing that people really have to be honest with, and I think in psychology specifically, um, people like to really fool themselves. Um, that's the biggest person fooling you is yourself in terms of, um, you know, what your salary will be, like what the salary ranges are, because you can go and Google it. You can Google what a clinical psychologist will make. You can go and Google what a social worker will make at different points in their career. You can Google what an IO psychologist will make. And the lower ranges of those are are lower, you know. <clears throat> and many people think, you know, in terms of, let's say, social work, I'm going to have a private practice where I'm going to be billing two, dollars $300 an hour. Uh, and you don't get there right away. Many people think, like, that's what I'm going to do. But the truth of the matter is you might be working for a, you know, a clinic 
and you know be making forty thousand dollars fifty thousand you have to really be honest with yourself and this goes with any career um but to really um, decide you know mix between your passion and also your needs and be able to make sure that both of those are being met Mm -hmm. interesting so if you had the opportunity now to go back to your college career like start all over again are there things that you do differently um i i happen to think my uh my path specifically for my the field that i went went into baruch hashem i've been like really blessed with different opportunities that i was able to take uh and kind of starting with that idea of what i wanted to go into um you know there are certain technical skills i would have loved to develop early on like you know i would have loved to learn how to code because uh in my field if you have coding experience whether it's um you know with r or python you really open yourself up to um, advanced career opportunities similarly to if you're bilingual and you speak spanish for mm-hmm. example uh, there are a lot of jobs where they'll see that on a resume and say great we want you because there'll be opportunities where you'll be able to add more value so so you're basically telling everyone learn spanish and learn to code <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and um i think within a lot of careers having a almost if you will you know majoring in a field and minoring in mm-hmm. computer science is is uh, definitely helpful but not even you don't have to minor in anything there are a million courses out there and mm-hmm. youtube and books and you can learn everything yourself mm-hmm. these days it's less about um you know having that piece of paper and more about some something to back it up interesting so i wouldn't get into like advice i want to first you know what's the best advice someone's given you and then i want to go into the more other side of it what's the worst advice someone's given you it's a very interesting question um I think the best, I can tell you the worst advice first. The worst advice I've ever gotten was, you know, choose your career path and then like, that's it. You have to like, you know, think really hard because once you decide on a career path, like you're already too invested. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I know many people who've made different career jumps and um, pivots throughout their career. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something very- At what what stage, once they've already- At different stages. I know someone who is an investment banker who you know, at 24, decided to go to med school. You know, I know people within my own field who will jump from, you know, working corporate to going into private coaching. They'll, you know, there are people who will decide to follow their passion. And I think it's important to fully invest yourself in something, but at the same time, you know, allow yourself to be open to different opportunities. And that was more of the better advice that I've gotten, which was, you know, Follow your passion, make sure you're meeting your needs, um, but also things will happen in your career and in life that kind of, you know, fall into your lap. You know, should I do this? Should I, you know, should I go um, the road on the right or the road on the left? And, um, you know, you can just make that decision and it'll all end up working out. And that's not a personal guarantee. Don't come back to me for that. Um, We're holding you directly accountable for that. But it really is true. If you, um, you know, believe in what you're doing and find passion in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you can really choose anything and you know find success. Fine. So, before we end off, we we like our stick questions here. So, uh, the first stick question that is always interesting to hear. I you're gonna laugh. I'll tell you my other answers afterwards. But we're gonna ask if you were flying the wall, watching two people have dinner, who would they be and why? That's a very funny question. 
Um, I'll tell you, I answered Churchill and Hitler for my last one, and I got roasted for it. So I <laughs> definitely don't go down that route. Um, I, I won't go down that. Um, I would say a conversation and a realistic conversation that probably happens quite frequently uh, is a, a dinner conversation between Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Uh, you have two of the richest people in the world who have both decided that they're less gashmiistic, as you will. You know, Warren Buffett has this, whatever it is, a house he bought for $150,000 and drives an old uh, 1990 Ford pickup. You know, Bill Gates, they both decided they're giving away 99% of their money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's curious from like a guyish perspective, um, but also from that, you know, people who really made it. Because if you talk to most people, um, they'll always, no matter what their aspirations are or their um, different uh, moral or, you know, um, personality traits, whatever, whatever it may be, uh, at the end of the day, they're all driven by money. We have needs. So it would be very interesting to see the conversation between two people who have it all, mm-hmm. but at the same time who've also acknowledged that there is more to life than money. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to see what that conversation is because you know, for us to say, oh, you know, that money is not the be all end all, but we, we don't have unlimited sources of money. Yeah. You know, the reason I chose them also is because they're both self made men. Yeah. They didn't come from families of wealth. They both started off, you know, working hard jobs, you know, Bill Gates in his garage and mm. you know, Warren Buffett like, you know, grinding through the years, you know, not elaborate uh, elaborate spenders. I think it would just be interesting. That would definitely be very interesting. That is definitely much better than not answering Um Other fun question we have, let's say within your work environment or your college campus, wherever it is, where would you say is the best place to take someone on the Shidduch date? So my company building uh, in Midtown New York, the basement, it's a, brand, it's a very uh, nice building, you could say. And in the basement, they have a gym but they also have a pool table and they have mm-hmm. arcades. That's and epic. it sounds funny, but you could literally you come down from work. They have Pac-Man, they epic. have a Street Fighter. <laughs> um, so you could you could come down and do that. I think that they have a coffee house down there. That's Very, awesome. Very um, 21st century Definitely working. Feel. That must be one of the hard things, not being back in the office again. Like Even though it's nice to work at home, like the office environment is probably hard to... Uh... The office environment is, is fun. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to be working with like-minded people. So then the next question we were going to ask is, let's say you throw out all ideolog- ideological and halakhic issues, where would you say would be your dream like location and your dream job to be? Right? You could go anywhere and do whatever you want. Wow. Um, you know, I'd want to be in, uh, in Bali with six in, you know, with like a nice eight-inch beard. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, what... Uh, what I'd love to do, and not necessarily throwing those out the window, um, but working for a large tech company, you know, something like IBM, um, like, you know, one of the opportunities that cloud or tech companies offer is um, remote work is not only temporary, it's been something that's been um, focused on for years. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, working from Israel, being able to kind of live a more simple life, but at the same time, be involved in the interesting technological advances, um, you know, of today's day and age. Interesting. interesting. That was definitely a lot more practical than I thought it would be. (laughs) (laughs) Ben, this was, this is truly incredible. Do you have anything that you want to add on to our listeners? Um, 
Go to Turo. That's why subliminal messaging has been going from the beginning. If you listen to this podcast, you'll get a uh, 50% discount. Whoa. <laughs> That's cutting out. Um, okay, amazing. Thank you so much for joining me on here. Um, if anyone has any questions for you, they can get in contact with me and I will put you in contact with Ben. Um, and yeah, come to Toro. <laughs> um, have a great night and thank you for joining me. Ben. You too.